You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah.gmail.com, and, of course, I will answer as many as I can. You know, the last show, there was a story I wanted to get to. Didn't have a chance. So I figured, let me open with that story. Just a, a very interesting piece of history. And then we'll dive into what we really want to talk about. So, um, in the last show, we talked a lot about the Sabbath. Because the this week's Torah portion, Vayakel, um, discusses how Moses gathers everybody to inform them about the Sabbath. So, a very interesting story. Um, January 1st, 2000, so okay, 22 years ago, um, in honor of Y2K, which never really happened, um, the New York Times, which is having a lot of its own problems right now, but at least then it was a pretty happening newspaper. Too many, too many side comments. I'm trying to get through the story over here. Anyways, let's start again. So January 1st, 2000, the New York Times had a very interesting idea. They had what they called their Millennium Issue. So what they did was they created three, um, three front pages of the New York Times. One from January of 1900, January 1st of 1900, which was just a copy of what happened 100 years ago. One was January 1st, 2000. That was that day in history. And the next one was January 1st, 2100. Now, before we go on, um, for not then, already, then by that point they'd already stopped, but uh, there were a couple years where the New York Times, I think it was five years, that on every Friday, on the, I think it was on the bottom of the front page, um, it said, um, for all Jewish women, candle lighting in New York City is, and it would say the time. It was candle lighting for women, which is very important to bring in the Sabbath. Uh, women light candles before the Sabbath. I'm sure you've all seen pictures. A lot of famous Jewish paintings have that kind of picture of the mother covering her eyes while she's praying for her children. It's a very beautiful time. Just mothers can sit or stand and pray for their children. It's a very special time for prayer. It's a very special time for women. But um, candlelighting is 18 minutes before sunset. So not everybody knows exactly what time sunset is. People are always asking, when is candlelighting? So the New York Times, there was a philanthropist that paid... Um, I think it cost him $2,000 a week, um, paid to write down, you know, every week in the New York Times, um, candlelighting for that week in the New York City area. Uh, things went a little sour for that philanthropist, um, so he stopped paying, so therefore they stopped putting it in. But the, the production manager decided for the January 1st, 2100 issue, he put back in um, candlelighting for Jewish women, he wrote the time. So it happens to be the guy who's an Irish Catholic. Happens to be. So they asked him, 
they said, like, why did you put in candle lighting in the year 2100? Like, why? Like, with all the different things, you're trying to figure out what's what's the world going to look like in 100 years from now, right? You decided your paper will still be here. Who knows if there'll be newspapers by 2100, right? It's, we're, we're only in 2022 and barely we have uh, use for newspapers. Okay, fine. That they weren't ready for in 2000. So when they asked the production manager, he says, look, he says, we don't really know what the year 2100 is going to look like. We barely know what tomorrow is going to look like. But one thing we do know, the Jewish women will still be lighting candles 18 minutes before the Sabbath begins. And that is a telling tale of how we ourselves should look at, at what we do and how the world looks at us. And as the Jewish people has been around and the Jewish people will continue to be around and there are certain things we're always going to be doing. And if a non-Jew can recognize that Jewish women will still be lighting candles a hundred years from when he was uh, taking care of his newspaper, we certainly should have that kind of attitude. Okay, so once we're talking about women, that's really a great lead into this week's Torah portion. So it was mentioned in last week's Torah portion a little bit, but the details come out in this week's Torah portion. And that is the what was called the kiar. The kiar was a big washing basin. It had a base, it had a big bucket or whatever it was, filled with water with two spigots. Happens to be in the time of the temple, a wealthy person came and rebuilt it and put 12 spigots so 12 priests could wash their hands and feet at the same time because a priest, when he's working in the temple, cannot do any of the service until he has washed his hands and feet. That vessel is called, in Hebrew is called a kiar. It is one of the utensils made of copper. There's not that much copper used in the tabernacle. You have the, the outside altar, which was... Square. It was a hollow square, which the outside was covered in copper. Um, you have some of the the um, the bases for the outside courtyard. You have some of the the um, sockets for the almost like the front door going into the tabernacle. For the most part, that was it for copper, and the copper used for this. Well, I'm calling it a washing basin. I think they call it a. Uh, lava or something in English. It's not really important to what the word is because most of us don't know what it is. But suffice to say, it was a big, big um, washing station. It was made of copper. Where they get the copper from? So interesting, you know, throughout these Torah portions, it doesn't really tell me where the gold came from. Ladies' earrings, ladies' necklaces, men's rings. It doesn't really go nitty-gritty into the details where the gold came from. It doesn't go into nitty-gritty details like who had wood and where they got the wood from. It's in passing at best. But all of a sudden, for this vessel, it actually tells me exactly where the copper came from. Where did it come from? It says the women donated their mirrors. And nowadays, mirror, we have beautiful mirrors nowadays, right? You have a piece of glass, and basically it's coated with a piece of silver on the back, and voila, you have a mirror. But in those days, they didn't make mirrors that, that way. Silver was money. Like, why would you put money on the back of a piece of glass? 
In those days, you would take a piece of kapper, and you would you would polish it up, super beautiful. And for the most part, I guess there was a, a nice shiny reflection. That's what you use for mirrors. So the women brought their mirrors to donate. Like, why do they have the mirrors? Why are they donating these mirrors? What happened with these mirrors? And, by the way, when they piled up all these mirrors and said to Moses, we're donating this, Moses did not want to accept it. Moses, mirrors? I don't want them. And God has to come to Moses and say, you don't want them? I love these mirrors. I specifically want you to use them in the building, the tabernacle, for something that's used all the time. So we have a, we, there's, there's obviously something that we're missing um, in the story. So therefore, we will backtrack in history and let's find out what were these mirrors used for that Moses did not want to use them and God says you must use them. Right? Again, the great Moses, he has a reason why he thinks there's something wrong. These mirrors represent something that we don't want and God says you missed the boat, which is good. So here we go. So way back at the beginning of the book of Exodus, so Pharaoh gets the Jewish people to be slaves. He tricks them. We've gone over the story. You can go back to old shows to find out or just open up your your Bible and see if you can figure it out. It's not too much detail there. In any case, the Jewish people were made slaves in Egypt, right? We've been invited down to Egypt uh, because of Joseph, and uh, whatever it was, 60, 70, 80 years later, the Egyptians turn us into slaves. The reason, one of the reasons that Pharaoh wanted us to be slaves was because he would work us so hard, we wouldn't be interested in being with our wives anymore. We wouldn't be interested in having families and having children. And that's what Pharaoh wanted. He wanted to basically... Uh, wipe out the Jewish people and the first plan of wiping out the Jewish people would be to basically destroy the birth rate. No children, no country. Very, I'm sorry, no children, no Jewish people. Very simple. Very simple plan. And it was a good plan. It was if the Pharaoh was putting this plan, it wasn't like he thought maybe this was a good idea. He knew this was a good idea. His advisors had told him this will be an excellent idea and it will work. So what happened? Why didn't it work? So the reason it didn't work is because of the Jewish women. The Jewish women understood the Pharaoh's plot, and the women went ahead and said, we're not letting this happen. So they went ahead and they used the mirrors. They made themselves very beautiful. They, they whatever makeup and clothing and hair and designs and headpieces, whatever they did, they went sort of over the top to make themselves fantastically attractive to their husbands. And they go out to the fields and they'd show their husbands how attractive they are and they would entice their husbands and they would get their husbands to stay with them and to build families. That, that was what the Jewish women used these mirrors for. They used it so they would continue to have relations with their husbands. They would continue to have children. The Jewish people would continue. And it actually says, because of this story, it says, in the merit of the righteous women, we merited to leave Egypt. Because if not for these women, there'd be no Jewish people. 
And I actually just saw in the in a piece of Talmud recently, um, the Tosus really talks about it that the the this is part of the reason why the women well, it happens like this without getting too deep into this. There are certain commands, any time bound positive command, um, women are off the hook. As men must do all time bound positive commands, women do not have to. And the basic reason is because they're busy taking care of their children, and they you can't do both. You just can't do both. Now, a negative command, of course, they're responsible, but on the positive commands, they're not responsible. Like learning Torah, for example. Like wearing phylacteries, for example. Maybe like wearing the tzitzis, for example. There's a lot of time-bound stuff. Now, eating matzah, by the unleavened bread, by the seder, the Passover night, would be a perfect example that women should be exempt. But since women were part of the slavery and they were part of our success in getting out of Egypt because of the story I just told you, that because of the righteous women, we merited to get out of um, Egypt. So therefore, they also will have, they also have the command to eat the matzah because... They uh, they were heavily involved. First of all, they were part of the slavery, but but more important, they were involved in us getting out of Egypt. Okay. So now, they take these mirrors and they said, "Look, the purpose of these mirrors were to make sure our husbands wanted to be with us, to because they were slaves and they didn't want to be with us and they didn't want to have children, didn't want to be married, didn't want to have families. So the purpose of these mirrors were to protect the family. But now we're in the desert, right? We don't." must have these mirrors for our husbands to want to stay married to us, right? They, they want to have the families now because now we're not slaves. Now we're in the desert. We're traveling to the land of Israel, and they want to have families. So we don't need these mirrors anymore. So we want to donate these mirrors. So now we have to look at these mirrors. Are these mirrors holy? Are these mirrors special? Or do we look at these mirrors as something used that's not as pure. Maybe, you know, there's obviously there's two different ways of looking at a husband and wife relationship. Is it something that's pure, clean, or do people look at it as something unclean, something dirty? How do you look at it? So interesting enough, it seems Moses looked at it as something unclean. It's something necessary, but but is it something that we want in our holy temple? Is that something we want there? A very interesting question. How do we look at the relationship part of a marriage? Is it something that you got to let husband and wife do, but that's not where the holiness resides? Or is it also part of the holiness of a marriage? So Moses felt that this is not something that belongs in the temple. God says, you don't understand. This is beautiful to me. I love this. I want this. And this is something that actually differentiates the Jewish people from the Christian world. Why? Because the Torah's outlook on love and religious life is that love is physical and emotional. Maimonides actually says. Right? When he compares, I wrote it down, right? When he compares the love the Jewish people have to God, he says our love to God is the love and passion one has towards a woman. On a similar vein, there's something called Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs. 
If you've ever opened up the Song of Songs and read it, it is a love story. Plain and simple. Describing what a woman looks like, describing the love of a woman to a man, a man to a woman. Very physical. But the fact of the matter is that we call Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, it's called the most holy of all songs. Holy of songs, describing a man, a woman's relationship, how could that be? Because the answer is that it is, if it's done properly. In other words, we believe that a, a, a healthy physical relationship between husband and wife is the ultimate. It's done in a holy way. We want people to be married. We want people to have a loving, wonderful, physical relationship throughout their life. That's what the Torah wants. Unlike um, the early Christians that came from the Greeks, by the way, um, that they felt that this story, the original sin between uh, um, Adam and Eve, between Adam and Chava, um, they look at it as a story of sinful sexual desire, which is not a Jewish thought at all. That wasn't what they did wrong. That What they did wrong was eating when God told them not to eat from the tree. The relationship they had to have children that they were supposed to have, that's a beautiful thing. That's what God wants, right? So in other words, so to remake it simple, um, God says when a husband and wife get married and they have a beautiful life with a healthy physical relationship together, that is part of serving God. That is part of the the... The, that love is part of the religion. That is part of holiness. There is a holiness to a husband and wife's relationship. It doesn't mean it's supposed to become public. It doesn't mean we do it in public. We have our bedroom. We do it privately, right? But at the same time, there is also a holiness connected to it. No one should think that God doesn't like it and it's dirty and it's not nice. And it, but, you know, that's what people are. It's an animalistic tendency. Not true. That is part of the life a husband and wife are supposed to lead. Again, they do it in a private way. They do it privately. Their bedroom is a holy room. It's a special room, right? But it's, it's, it's holy. There's a holiness there. It is not something to be looked down at. We do not believe in the Jewish religion of a concept of a monk or a nun or not getting married. Um, I just have one of my kids. Um, and I, with my class, there's a, in the Mishnah we were learning, so it says someone's name. His name was Ben Zoma. It doesn't say his first name. It says the son of Zoma. Who is he? It happens to be his name was Shimon. But when the Mishnah says over his name, they happen to, um, to um, not say his first name. Why do we not say his first name? Because he wasn't married. Some say he tried to be married, but he was so busy studying Torah, he couldn't handle being married. But whatever it was, the rabbis wanted to make it very, very clear that the idea of not being married is a bad thing. We believe people should be married. They should have a healthy relationship, a healthy physical relationship. But at the end of the day, they should be married. Not being married is not a Jewish thought. It is not how we look at the religion of being Jewish. Is that it? It's wrong. And, and therefore, God says, I want these mirrors. These mirrors are very, very important. Now, it's interesting. 
Um, for the most part, the purpose of the kiar of this wash basin was for the, the priests to wash their hands at the beginning of the day or before they did any of the service. However, it did serve another purpose. Um, there is a concept, there is a, a lady called a sota. A sota is a lady whose husband suspects that she's uh, having an affair. So the Torah, he suspects her, right? But we're hoping he's wrong. So the Torah has a test for this lady. And the test involves erasing a certain Torah portion into water taken from the kiyar, taken from this wash basin. That was this wash basin represented the righteous women who were faithful to their husbands. So this lady is perhaps being unfaithful. Perhaps she's having an affair. So when she drinks this water, one of two things will happen. If she was having an affair, she's going to die pretty much on the spot. If she wasn't having an affair, she'll become healthy. Um, if her children till now were not healthy, she'll have healthier children. Now it's because the, the very vessel that represented the, the, a, a faithful woman to her husband, that's the vessel that will test this lady who perhaps was unfaithful. Okay. Um, involved in the concept of... Involved in the concept of, uh, of the donation. So I just told you that in this week's Torah portion, we're talking about the ladies, that their special donation of mirrors. But overall, um, everybody came and donated. There was something else people donated. And that was, we need craftsmen. Who's going to make all this uh, artistry? Who's going to make all these beautiful tapestries? Who's going to build the ark and the table and the menorah and the, and the beams and the posts. Who's going to do this? We need craftsmen. The problem is um, we've been slaves for a very long time. Slaves are not craftsmen. Slaves are bricklayers. We built bricks. We made bricks. We built walls. We're not craftsmen. Our, our fingers were never developed. We did not do this stuff. But it says the wise of heart... Um, donated to say, I want to do the curtains. I want to be involved in the wood. I want to be involved in the metal. I want to be involved in the gold. I want to be involved in the copper. What, whatever they wanted to be involved, it says the wise of heart. So the question is, that. so you're wise of heart. What does wise of heart have anything to do um, with, uh, with building, with creating with being an artisan, with being a craftsman. What does wise of heart have to do with that? So some say that if a person truly, truly wanted to, don't, to, to be a craftsman, but it had to be deep, if he really, really wanted, miraculously God gave that person the ability, we call that wise of heart. However, Rabbi Dr. Avram Tversky says something very fascinating. He was very famous for dealing with um, with people that had different um, um, addictions. He was very involved in addictions. And he says, very interesting. He says, people have skills. They don't recognize these skills. And the person could be in therapy for a year and a half. And all of a sudden, through that year and a half of therapy, the person will realize that he has a certain skill. And he would say to Dr. Tversky, he would say, how come you never told me? 
I've been with you for a year and a half. You couldn't tell me a year and a half ago that I have this skill and this would help me, right? So Dr. Tversky explains, Rabbi Dr. Tversky explains that there are emotional factors that get in the way. There are things that do not let our brain and our heart connect. It's these emotions. So Dr. Tversky explains that when one's emotions, when when a person has a certain devotion to God, it opens up his heart, or her heart for that matter. So wise heart means that one's emotions are now permitting himself to implement the power of his intellect. Okay, that's very fancy, and the music is playing, but if you think about it, imagine if we had this attitude towards our children. You're going to have to really think about that one, because the music is playing, and I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. And, of course, thank you again to all our wonderful sponsor listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you, of course, our under production team. We have David, Cisco, and Andy in the back. I have my website Food for Thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NR Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it. There's a house we can build.